Hello, and welcome to the Network Collective Community Roundtable. Um, so me personally, uh, I work primarily in the enterprise networking space. So I always enjoy an opportunity to talk about the ins and outs of what it's like to do networking in industries that don't follow the typical enterprise models. And today we're doing just that. Um, Brian Martin, who works at Twitch uh, for, on the network engineering team, is joining us to talk about what it's like to work on a network that the primary product is real-time, in-demand, live streaming video. If you, like me, are super interested in hearing what it takes to make a service like that run, then hold on and we'll be right back after the break. Hi, hi Brian. Thanks for coming on the show with us today. Hey, Tony. Glad to be here. It's, uh, I'm glad to see you again. I haven't seen you in quite a while. Yeah, we don't have a Cisco Live this year in person. Yeah. So I'm very excited to get into this episode because I think where you work and what you do is actually uh, very interesting. And it's definitely a world that I don't get to peek into. But I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about sort of how I met you and why I asked you to come on the show. Um, I met Brian through uh, the Land Tamers Discord server uh, when the Land Tamer started his CCIE streaming. Uh, we met on there because myself, the Land Tamer, and Brian, and others as well, were all working towards a CCIE. I think, Brian, you were trying to get focused on the service provider side at that time, right? Yeah, service provider. Yeah, so for many months, we chatted online, and, and we built a rapport with each other. And, and as typically what you do, when, when you go to Cisco Live, you try to meet the people who you've been chatting with. And uh, myself, the Land Tamer, Brian Martin, and a couple others decided to meet up, and we all met up at the uh, what do you call those Cisco uh, demo labs? We were working those um, the walk in uh, self pace, yeah, walk in yeah, self pace yeah. labs. Yeah. I think we all that was the first thing we did is we all met up and just headed right over there like we were uh, like we were in a carnival, just like with tickets in line, yeah. like ready, so excited for it. And uh, and it was really awesome content, and I ended up hanging out with Brian all that week, and then staying in touch with him afterwards. And uh, and it's been a real pleasure um, uh, to get to know him. So at that time, I think that was right around the time you were making the move from your previous employer over to Twitch. And, and ever since then, I've always been like, what does that look like? You know what I mean? How does someone even do that? How does someone get involved with that? I figure that's like a dream networking job. You know, it's like, you know, software engineers getting moved over to Google or something. And so, uh, so I wanted to bring you on today to actually talk about uh, what it takes to be an engineer in an environment like that. And sort of what your experience has been over the past uh, few months. So uh, to get us started off, I was kind of thinking about when we think about Twitch, what kind of network is Twitch? Is it a service provider network? Is it a CDN? Is it a mix of the both? Sort of how do you classify that? How do you guys talk about it? Uh, most closely aligned to a CDN. Um, there are definitely similar aspects in the technology to what you see in a service provider world. Um, we're also not strictly a CDN. Um, I, I guess there are kind of two different definitions of what you'd consider a CDN. There are dedicated companies that just host content for other people or just deliver that content. And then there are, you know, places that have, you know, whatever video content, um, image content that the network is a primary part of their business in running their own content delivery network, but there's more to the company than that. And that's the space that Twitch fits into. I want to I want to rephrase that. I, I just want to make sure that I, like I have the understanding here. So there's there's CDNs that their business is being a CDN, like it's literally the product that they sell. Is the idea is like if you are 
A smaller network where CDN is not so important to you that you have to build it out yourself, but you could pay for it as a service. That's who you use. Yes. And, and that's that's one model of CDN. The other size of CDN is your content grows to the point where you have to do CDN and it doesn't make sense to pay someone else because it's so critical to what you do and deliver that you're going to do it yourself. Right. And um, in addition to the cost aspect, you end up with higher or better ability to control quality when you run your own CDN, because when you're handing it off to somebody, you can't really see all the same specifics about where that's going and like make granular decisions about how you're handling the traffic. So having your own CDN, your own applications run over it, um, making those decisions allows you to get higher quality um, and a better customer experience. Right. So cost may, it may be a smaller part of it. You're really, and also you might be solving different problems. I think a generic CDN falls into the same limitations that other general, you know, may, maybe cloud providers or whatever. They're going to solve for a very specific set of problems. Um, and maybe those specific set of problems aren't exactly the problems that you're solving for. So maybe you need to do CDN-like networking, but it gets pushed out because you're solving a slightly different problem than what everyone else is by using a CDN. Right. It has to be tailored specifically to your use case versus right. whatever would be more generalized. Because, I mean, we at Network Collective, we use a CDN, but our needs are like, you know, I'm sure like, you know, millimeters compared to the many, many feet of depth that is required for what you do, right? Yeah. You know, we just, we just want to speed up delivery of some images and some podcast files. You're dealing with like real-time video and, you know, our audiences tend to be pretty centrally located, <laughs> whereas, whereas I imagine your audiences are all over the globe. I mean, is that true? I mean, not just you, but CDN in general. I mean, by the time you get to the network where you're building your own CDN, I imagine it's got to be... Uh, yeah, pretty, in, in pretty general, for, for any CDN at scale, you're looking at um, a globally distributed network. You need to be able to, you know, cache whatever content you're having, you know, as close to the end user as possible. Uh, you know, the closer it is, the sooner it gets out onto the internet. Um, you don't want something, you, you don't want your traffic just coming out of like a central location being let out onto the internet and then just hoping it gets to the endpoint. It's better to be like dropping it off as close to the end user's ISP as possible. That's, you said an interesting word in there, and I, th I think we might be preceding uh, maybe the next line of conversation, and maybe it's just natural to start here and talk about it. Maybe we go back and forth a bit. You said caching. But I think that sets at odds with the idea of a live streaming service. Like, so, like, how does, if you're offering live streaming content, how does caching play into that? Because like, I'm not sure that those two things, at least in my head, from a, a super high level and from not working in that industry, like, what, what does that mean, caching for a live stream? Well, so if you think about it um, from a distribution perspective, um, if I have one copy of, uh, you know, a video, an image, whatever that I want to send out, um, if I send out that piece of content from one source where multicast is not feasible on the global internet, then I have to say if I have a million people that want that piece of content, then I have to send it out a million times from the source. So by distributing that content to more pops globally, um, it reduces the number of times that that needs to be like replicated from the source. So is caching in this case more like proxy? Like we're, we're going to send out to a bunch of proxy nodes that sit globally um, so that when users request this content, they're going to hit whatever the closest proxy node is. So we can send one stream to that proxy node and that proxy node is going to serve 10% of the yeah, user population. Is yeah, the general exactly. idea? You're just mm -hmm. trying to distribute the load. So I mean, because when I think about caching, 
I'm thinking about probably the traditional CDN model. I'm thinking about the idea that, hey, I have images on my website. They get distributed out everywhere, but then they just sit there waiting for someone to access them and they're available. Thinking about it in the terms of a live stream, like it, it's it's content. It's still content. And I imagine the cache then puts it at some level of delay. I mean, the idea is that yeah. you're always going to be, you know, a few seconds behind or maybe you know, maybe if you're really close to the source, you're a couple seconds behind. But if you're all the way on the other side of the world, you're a minute behind. Yeah. Um, process Is that how it works? Yeah, there's always going to be latency in there beyond just the network. You can't, um, the application level is always going to add latency. Um, you can't just like, you know, frame by frame, move something across. Because um, like there are decisions that need to be made along the way and everything. Um, so I think it's the same kind of concept of caching. Um, it's just more distributed. So like the same like segment of video or uh, piece of an image or whatever would just have to go to like every site globally where it can be stored. Um, digging into like how that happens live is a, a bit more on the application end of things, but um, it's kind of more of just a very rapid version of the caching where you have to, um, without being able to use multicast, you can't just like immediately replicate the packets. So you have to have something on the application to store that and then basically initiate new outbound requests. So I, I imagine, and I'm sure Twitch is not alone in this, other people, like the application's a big piece of that. It is, is, is it an actual distribution of that material? Like what actually sits in those pops that exist all over the world? The application, some of the magic special sauce that you're not going to talk about with anybody else because... Some of, some of that is 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 how you're actually taking that, or is that something that's just industry standard? Is that something that you all use the same tools, or is that? Uh, no, it's definitely something that's uh, you know pretty much home baked for yeah, everybody. Um, I, would, I would assume so. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a little bit of uh, tooling that can be used, but for the most part, it's like proprietary tooling built in house, like built to the specific needs. Um, I, yeah, I guess that's something I want to get more towards the end, but uh, th- there's within the CDN world and I'd imagine something like the web scroller type world as well. Uh, you have much more of a marriage of the application and network than you see in like an enterprise network where, um, you're just more of in like a supporting role of what people are doing. Um, it, right. And, you know, my kind of network or CDNs uh, in general, it's just, uh, they're very combined. I was going to say, so like in the enterprise network, I kind of think of, you know, the network is, as laying down the highway, right? We're, we're part of the infrastructure that the users access applications over. But I guess in your world, it's sort of the network and the application uh, backend. Uh, it, it needs to be married up. Yeah. Um, you end up like there are some scaling challenges that like nothing really exists in networking for, like the level of route scale that you have, um, having you know so much globally distributed peering. Um, that you need to end up like handling some of that in applications that can handle that type of prefix scale. So Brian, that's an interesting point about peering. I think I want to, um, I want to talk about that a little bit because I know that, you know, for some, well, first of all, for enterprise networks, enterprise networkers are not typically used to the idea of uh, like IXs and going into different exchanges and peering with lots and lots of different people. Their idea of peering is typically just with their ISP. Um, and, and, 
I know that there are different models for peering. Um, some networks love to have traffic on their network as fast as possible or as soon as possible and, and hold on to that traffic for as long as possible. Some networks like to hold on to traffic for as little as possible. It all depends on just what the economics are around what that is. So what is that like for CDNs? What does that look like? Like, What does peering look like for you? And, and how is that managed? And, 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 and I guess just what's the broad picture there? Yeah, so a couple things to dig into there. Um, I think... I know there was a previous episode on uh, peering as a whole, but just a quick overview. Uh, in the peering world, you have kind of like direct peerings where you connect to somebody, um, you know, peer with them, share capacity. You have internet exchange points where a bunch of different uh, providers, customers are all co- connected to the same fabric and peering with each other. Uh, that may have like kind of reduced capacity, um, a little bit less granular management than direct peering would have. Um, and then in any network at that scale, like you're never going to be able to peer with everybody in the world and have every route. So you always still need to have like general transit ISP, like default route connectivity still in place as like a backup for anybody that you're not peering with or, you know, if something happens to the links that you're peering on. So, so for CDNs, are you peering I, I, just in general, are you peering then obviously with as many service providers as you can? Uh, to get it down to residential customers as quickly as you can, I'm assuming. Um, this is general CDN policy, right? This isn't Twitch specifically. So, And then you're also going to peer with as many large networks as you can, where you see yeah. large user bases. I mean, is that is that generally the strategy? Yeah, so you have a peering with like the transit networks and then like the eyeball networks uh, that actually have customers. The eyeball um, networks. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> where the people live. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, here the terms like tier one and tier three ISPs, um, kind of the same thing, people that are serving customers versus serving providers. Um, Yeah, it's definitely complex in who you end up peering with. um, So like some politics to go into it. um, Shocking. Politics around peering. Yeah, so Where have I heard this before? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it ends up being a lot to manage that, but there's definitely a different perspective on it on like a content delivery network than a service rider network. Uh, service riders are always going to do like hot potato routing for the most part. Like they want to get traffic off their network as soon as possible. It makes it more efficient for them, reduces costs. Like they don't want to just hold on to a bunch of traffic because then they have to put in the, the expenditure to support the, that utilization. But in you know, a CDN world where you want to provide your viewers with the best quality possible or your users, um, you really want to try to hand off as close to the end user as possible. If you can like get your content to be dropped off on a peering that's on the same network that the customer subscribes to for their ISP, that's the ideal situation because then there's no really unknowns. You're not jumping through networks that you don't have a relationship with or can't troubleshoot something with. Um, and less chance of like congestion because of those peering politics uh, that could happen in other places outside of your control. Right. So you really get the best experience by dropping it off as close to the end user as possible. So really where that is the more expensive path, right? Cause you're, you're then managing the traffic for, you know, I mean, your CDN, you're trying to make it as localized as possible, but you're trying to get it on your network as quickly as possible because then you have, you know, control of the experience. Um, where, where in the service provider, everything's about the economics. Everything's about like, can I get it off my network as fast as possible? Because if I transit this across the globe or whatever, like I'm then both responsible for the cost of those links to get it across over there. But I'm mm-hmm. also then responsible for the support of, you know, the, the, the quality of that connection while it's riding across my network. 
Um, so it kind of fits hand in hand. They want to get rid of it quickly. You want to get it quick. You want to get it as quickly as possible or as close to the consumer as possible. Um, that makes a lot of sense, but I imagine it makes for a very complicated pairing policy. So your yeah. routes have to be rather complicated because you're going to be receiving routes from multiple instances and in multiple places. And I imagine there's probably people on your team that just manage just that, right? The peering relationships. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Like that's a job is yeah. <laughs> managing yeah. peering with other people. Yeah. It's uh that's, that's interesting. So again, not a world that I'm not part of, but that I get to hear about because of what I do, you know, here at network collective, um, talking to lots of people and providers and whatever, but it is, I think it is interesting to look at that dichotomy about, who who owns the network? Who owns the traffic quickly, and who doesn't? I know cloud also typically wants to own the traffic quickly because again they're still worried about the same things. They yeah, want that yeah, user experience yeah. to be good. Yeah, well, for them, economics good. play well too as well because for them as traffic traverses their network, they get paid. Um, so there's there's that as well. <laughs> so yeah, I would like to transition a bit. Um, and I want to transition to talking about kind of, you know, maybe some some modern time stuff. So we're dealing with some interesting times here with um, the pandemic that's going on and coronavirus. And we've seen traffic on the Internet uh, kind of shift dramatically. And so just editorializing a little bit, right? Like tr like we've seen the network or when I say the network, the Internet um, shifting from a very distributed east-west traffic flow from when it was first created to very centralized services that a few people go to. We see the big players as kind of being the destinations. People go to Google, people go to Amazon, people go to, you know, fill in the blank about, you know, the the big eight or 10 web properties on, on the globe. And it was very north-south oriented. And we kind of reoriented the entire internet to optimize for those traffic flows because that's typically what happened is, is traffic was going that way. Now, obviously, coronavirus happens and everyone goes home and we see more east-west flows. So this is just more a service provider problem in VPNs. Um, lots of people connecting to VPNs. So now all of a sudden, the consumer home <laughs> connection is no longer just going to the major eight. They're going to all kinds of entities that didn't, didn't happen before. I'm curious, have you seen similar transitions in the way that your traffic works? Like, have you seen differences in the way that the traffic is behaving? Or has been the primarily shift just been kind of like a scale thing? Uh, in our case, it's primarily a scale thing because we have, you know, the, the content producers that come into us um, that are in, you know, the upload direction, we uh, into us and then, you know, users of the content that are going outbound. So we've kind of seen that be mostly steady. The primary change we've seen is just a massive increase in scale. So so the, the network... Um... Like the network flows have stayed the same. We've just seen an increase. And is it an increase on both sides of that equation? Is it both content creators and consumers? Or is it is it kind it's of like the, more unidirectional? <laughs> it, it's, it's definitely increasing on both sides, but uh, there's been more so or more noticeable in the content creator side of things. Um, a, a lot of people are, you know, out of work, unfortunately, um, right. looking for something to do with the free time. So people are, starting to look into like the extra source of revenue of creating content on whatever platform. So fascinating. So, I, I thought it would be the other way. I thought people would be home. Like if you were, I think it would be, it's a lot less investment to be the casual consumer, right? They're just talking right. about general, right? And a lot less investment to be the guy who watches the person playing video games than be the guy who buys all the gears and make it all work, send a stream up to the internet, you know, make it like there, there's work involved in that. But I guess if idle hands or whatever and, and, and interest, you're seeing a bigger uptick on the actually on the production side, mm. on the on the creation side. That's interesting. I, I um, know I know here at my home network, 
we have seen an uptick on the receiving Twitch streams <laughs> because because now with my kids home all day, if they get their schoolwork done, you know, and they they take care of their, everything else, then they get some screen time, you know. And my kids often have a a, a Nintendo Switch playing Fortnite while they're streaming a Twitch, a Fortnite streamer on on Twitch, and then someone else is watching something else in the other room. It's just. Uh, I imagine that a lot of kids being home, especially here in the United States, I don't know, you know, the economy of the rest of what the rest of the world is doing, but all of the kids here at home with internet access who are getting their schoolwork done in the middle of the day are firing up YouTube, Twitch, and, and every other way that they can consume videos. And uh, and and I, I assume that that gives you guys a huge upswing in, in outbound uh, network traffic. Yeah, so that's... Um... I guess kind of the, the way to look at that, we definitely see like an overall increase in scale. But when you have kids home during the day or people that are now streaming while they're working from home that wouldn't have been able to at work previously, <laughs> something like that, you, know, you you have like a diurnal curve. Throughout the day, you're going through peaks and troughs in traffic. And that is generally, um, it, like any content provider is going to see the peaks around like when people come home from work or come home from school in the evenings. So what you see in addition to just the overall increase is you see those troughs kind of filling in where normally people would be at work or school, but that's not really like affecting how you need to scale your network and application because you're already scaled up for, you know, the peak in the evening. So having more viewers during that daytime, you're just getting better utilization of what you're already using and paying for. Oh, that's interesting. I, I do have a, a question as well. Cause I mean, I think, I think about CDNs and I almost always think about them unidirectionally. I think it's about content consumption i think about it as the person who who's consuming the content from a cdn but what about the streaming side so what about the people who are creating the content is that also somehow a distributed process like do you have multiple ingestion nodes you know distributed across uh the globe so that when when you start streaming that content goes to you know some local resource first yeah so just like how you'd want how same would want to like drop video off to the as close to the user as possible it's going to be the same thing on the inbound direction we want to get that as close as possible. We don't want to just, you know, have the streamer content producer at the mercy of the global internet until they get into a single ingestion point. Yeah, so, that, that, it's probably not that interesting to anyone but me. I'm probably just the only, you know, dumb guy in the room who's like, why did I not think about the other side of this equation? But I guess it, it would matter in any type of live content. You've got to get the stream to you as quickly as possible, just as importantly as getting the stream from you to the consumer as, as quickly as possible. So, so you mentioned interesting things. So, I mean, so have you seen um, from a peak perspective, like has there been a change in the peaks or have, are the peaks relatively the same because there would have been evening or, or off to off hours consumption anyway. And, and that hasn't really changed. And like you said, you're just kind of filling in the, in, in the troughs or the valleys. Uh, the, the peaks are definitely increasing as well. Okay. So there, are, there are more idle hands, but it's not quite as, it's probably is not as dramatic as the increase in the troughs. Right. Um, yeah, it's not as dramatic. It is pretty dramatic. Um, just as like generalized numbers on the internet, um, a, a couple of the big players have put out like some public reports where they've seen traffic increases, just like overall utilization on the internet going up like 30 to 100%. Yeah. Total. So there's, uh, and, and that would be in peak utilization. So yeah, that makes sense. And, 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 I, and I wonder if, since you guys have a sort of global and distributed network, um, are you seeing increased utilization in more in, in specific regions and not so much in others? Like, like who's the laziest region who's just sitting around watching Twitch all day? 
I, I would say there's not a huge difference regionally. Where, where the difference is really seen was with coronavirus spreading was whenever a country like got hit hard and stay-at-home orders started getting issued, uh, once schools got canceled, like those events make you see an uptick for the region. Um, once people were told to stay at home and they needed to find something to do, uh, those are the kinds of things that drove growth. And um, yeah, it's fair. It was fairly universal. And so, 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 I'm, so I'm curious, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but but how does your company or a company like yours handle growth? I mean, do you guys ship out containers of of servers and get them all plugged in and add more routers and switches? Like, what does scaling look like? What does growth look like? For you guys, is it is it all just hands off, and it's just all uh, political bandwidth agreements? I, yeah, I mean it's constantly, you know, you want to grow global reach. The the more countries, the more service providers like you're close to and peering with, the better. Um, so it's always trying to in, increase that scale. Um, you know, by having you know that kind of network, we have distributed points of presence everywhere. Um, you also need to have like your own backbone, backbone network to get between those places. So it's increasing the capacity there as well. Mm. Um, and from like a software perspective, whenever you're at that kind of scale, you end up, or even like the network software, you start to push the limitations of, you know, vendor equipment and, you know, out of the box software. So you have to think about those kind of challenges as well. Mm. That's true. I will, and I will just say is, you know, again, just kind of looking at, at what's been happening, it's, it's actually quite impressive, not just on the streaming side, not just on the CDN side, or the internet as a whole, to, to see the adjustments that have been made with relatively little impact. It seems like big services. And I know that I know that doesn't happen accidentally. So I'm not trying to like downplay like what is involved in making that happen. Because I know that major internet properties and providers and and ISPs and all those people have been scrambling to make this true. But the reality is, is that we've seen major changes in consumption. You just threw out a number up there of like, you know, between 30 and 100 percent, like doubling of traffic in some places in certain times. And it's and it's been relatively painless. Um, and I'm speaking, obviously, from my perspective in my part of the world, but I also am connected with a lot of networkers across the world. I'm not hearing anyone complain mm. about the fact that that it hasn't been resilient enough to handle it. And so it is really interesting to hear about these, you know, these highly distributed networks and the way that they're built, because I think ultimately that is the way we do this. It's the way we solve this problem. You talk about the fact that, yeah, you see peaks increasing. Um but the troughs are not a big deal because you already were well equipped to handle those because you have to build for the peaks anyway. And so it's not the middle of the day problem. It's the, okay, now it's the evening for a particular region and, and people were already busy. Now there's more people there. So we have to add capacity for that. I just think all that's really interesting. And I think it's worth pointing out that it's people like you, Brian, not to, not to sit here and just pat you on the back and make you feel good about yourself. Although that's nothing wrong with that, but the, but it's, it's people like you and, and people who work in the environments like yours it's been really impressive to watch as being someone that, you know, <laughs> I work at a VAR and I help people make good decisions, but I don't really do any real networking anymore. Right. Like, I don't actually like, I'm not out there configuring stuff and throwing stuff out there. And so like, like, so for me, it's really impressive to, this is probably the first time I've been involved in a major event where it's like, I just get to watch like amazing people do cool <laughs> things. And it's like, I've been super impressed because it's like, wait a minute. I know a bunch of people are like sweating because they've been in the weeds and they've been working hard to make, to make all this work. But the reality is from the outside, it just works beautifully. It really has. It's been really amazing. Yeah, it's, um, I'd say that there are definitely some challenges there. Um, it's de definitely created some extra workload. Um, I mean, everybody's been kind of like trying to predict the scaling from like, 
oh, one country went on stay at home and we scaled this much. Let's like predict that out over this, you know, going global and try and, you know, get ahead of it at, you know, a much more rapid pace than we would normally have to scale. Um, and a lot of countries are doing that. But to jump back to the regional thing for a moment, um, I know this has been causing um, a lot of congestion for networks as a whole in Europe. Um, and just globally, that same report where I said that there was like 30 to 100% increase in traffic, uh, there's also been a reduction in like the download speed that end users are getting on like speed tests and stuff. Um, just because there's more congestion on the internet, uh, service providers you know, oversubscribe uh, end users, expecting people not to use them all the time, and now people are using them all the time. Um, so it's definitely created congestion that networks are trying to manage quickly. Uh, one of the big changes that happened in Europe, um, so some European governments pushed on uh, some of like, like a bunch of content production or content delivery companies to reduce the quality to try and mitigate some of that congestion. So if you go on, you know, whatever content site in uh, some countries right now, like you're not going to be able to watch in 1080p, maybe it may be 720p uh, to re- reduce that kind of bandwidth congestion. Yeah, we saw that. I mean, we're seeing that in America. Like, we're seeing the defaults on on YouTube, not to call them out, because I'm sure it's everywhere. You know, I'm sure it's not just mm. them, uh, of them lowering their defaults just so that, you know, like, if you can consume it in a lower quality, please do. But, you know, on their site, I guess, in America, and, and I've actually heard this. I want to explore this European thing a little bit more. Um, but uh, the it, it, at least in America, you can still kick it back up. But you have to be intentional about it. You have to actually ask for it. Whereas YouTube, you know, previously would put it to the highest quality your connection could could tolerate. Right. Now, now it's like, no, you're going to get the standard definition feed or you're going to get the 720 feed. And then you're going to have to request the 1080 or the 4K feed because we're just not going to give it to you by default. Now, I have heard that there's kind of a difference in approach. And, I don't, and this is not something we talked about. So I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, uh, it, there's a difference in approach in the way that like America does content delivery in CDN versus Europe. Um, and then it's causing some problems, at least in the service provider space. And I'm curious if you're seeing that similarly as well, where, um, and I'm not sure about all the nuance in this, but the idea of how we do uh, distributed versus localized content and, and all that happens, is there a difference in regions and how you deliver, deliver content? Or do you guys deliver, like, this is the way we do it. It doesn't really matter for the region because we just know what we have to do. Yeah, it's pretty much global. Um, there are, definitely some political factors that come into play in some regions that make it a lot more difficult um, to kind of have like the network that we'd want to. Um, yeah, there are a lot of factors that go into that. Um, so in the way we like support things, troubleshoot things, there are some differences like in Europe, there's kind of more dense population than there is in America. Um And I think that kind of shows in like how congested things are. Um, that denser population, they pushed out like fiber to the home and stuff like that quicker. There's better like download speeds to the end user. So I think that that in a time like this contributes more to the congestion. So you can see it more in a region like that um, than in the U.S. where things are more distributed. Um, yeah, that was really, I mean, I think slower. the super high level of what I've been hearing in general is that Europe kind of solved the content distribution problem with through, you know, more bandwidth. And we solved it through, you know, more generally through distributing the content to be closer to the to the consumer. And we're finding that that distribution model works a lot better than the content model, assuming, you know, that there is congestion, right? Like, because right. I think the, the European model was, so we got plenty of backbone, you know, like we're just going to throw it out there and the, the answer is always more bandwidth. 
And again, I'm speaking in broad generalities here. Yeah. So I'm sure there are many, many nuanced conversations here. It's always a risk. I'm sure I'll get people like you have no idea what you're talking about. But the idea is, you know, that we've seen much higher broadband speeds delivered to the house in Europe um, than what we've seen in America. So in America, we've had to do these things. We've had to distribute it closer. We mm -hmm. can't deal with contention because the moment we hit contention, there's nothing left. Like there's like we've kind of been forced to a model that is better suited for this environment than Europe generally. But I mm -hmm. think each company has also been making decisions about, you know, like, even though that's true, I mean, Twitch or, you know, YouTube or whoever is going to have to make decisions about how they're going to run their business, regardless of what the local connectivity policies are. I think it's more interesting from the service provider perspective than necessarily from the content distribution network perspective, because CDNs are going to build out pops where they need them, where the service providers, they change the model of, of how they build their backbones, depending on where those where the connections are. And I think that's, that's kind of more the impact there. I do want to transition. I think this is probably a good time. Um, I think we mentioned it earlier as well. Like this all sounds wildly different than I think most networks that, you know, early people get introduced to. <laughs> like I think about my progression, I've, I've spent most of my career working in enterprise networks. I've touched service provider a bit here and there, but not a ton. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what is it? Like, what are the skills? I mean, is this is this more of a service provider mentality? Like, if you want to get into CDNs and whatever, like, build service provider skills, or is there like a particular path? Like, what was your path, Brian? Like, how did you get into this? When you started, you started with a console and a switch somewhere, right? Figuring out how to put VLANs on something. Somehow, you made it to working in a CDN. What does that path look like? Um, yeah, in my case, I kind of got like really lucky where I started out, or at least you know. I'm really happy where I am in these kind of networks. I enjoy the larger scale stuff. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I worked my way through my CCNA and then started looking for a job. Um, and you know, where I found my first job was a you know, pretty large MSP or I almost called them like a network service provider. The network was the managed service. Um, and that was like large scale financial global distribution, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I jumped into that in like a knock position as my first job in the industry. And I think that kind of like helped springboard me being in that as a first thing. Like I didn't start out in the enterprise world in like an admin role. I just kind of like jumped into, you know, the kind of like the lowest level of support there and worked my way up through it. Um, and then transitioned from that to the CDM because it's pretty similar in the technologies that you're looking at. Um, so I think in, in kind of what, what sort of skills you want to look into with that, uh, there's breaking it down into two sections. There's the broader like service provider engineering world, or like that's what the, the vendors would call it under the certification tracks, but kind of the, the large scale mass scale networking stuff. Um, and that's where you're seeing less of the layer two stuff. Um, and you're seeing a lot more like BGP, MPLS, traffic engineering, getting into segment routing, um, multicasting quality of service, those sorts of technologies. Um and I, I guess that would not only apply to like CDNs, but that applies to things like uh, ISPs, MSPs, like I mentioned, uh, web scalers, uh, basically anything where the network either is the product or is like a key integration of the product rather than like a supporting role, like we talked about earlier. Um, and and just to piggyback off of that, just the the skills uh, that that might be required to be able to help engineer and administer this this kind of network. Um, everyone's touting, you know, automation, you know, and they're putting Python and 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 basic scripting uh, at the CCNA level. Um, is are those sort of skills an absolute must 
uh, for working in a in a sort of that globally distributed network uh, uh, like you administer? Um, I would say that definitely varies. Um, like where I'm at is is a tech company, um, and solving some of the challenges that that we have to solve that like nobody's faced before. The programmability becomes a lot more important to it. Um, there's kind of just like an expectation that you understand programming, have like some computer science knowledge. Um, so I, I'd say in a company like mine, that is very important. Um, the service provider providers have like kind of started adopting that more. I think that in the past few years, they've, they've jumped a lot, but for a while, like they were kind of lagging behind. Um, so you're kind of that, that shift I think is going slower and faster in different places. So I would say that that's not a requirement to get into this kind of work. You just have to, you know, find a specific job that doesn't require it to get started and then build that skill set and work your way, you know, up into things that are a little bit more robust. Very so cool. It, it sounds like everywhere else. Some people are doing it. Some people aren't. We're kind of in that transition right now. Yeah. And yeah, some some companies are more mature than others. Yeah. Uh, but it, we're definitely headed that direction. Is, 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 am I hearing that correctly? Like even in yeah. your world, like even the places that aren't doing it now are likely going to be doing it. Yeah, in, I mean, in the near term, I'd say when I got this position, I knew next to nothing about coding <laughs> and a little bit of like computer science background, but um, definitely like wasn't doing automation yet, and I've kind of like had to learn that on the job to keep up with people at times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of like the the more specific point of uh, CDN or like web scalar network versus just the generalized large scale network. Um, that kind of thing is more expected where you're more worried about the application and not just the network. Uh, there's an expectation that the network engineers understand the applications and that the, you know, some of the development engineers that are close to touching the network understand more networking concepts. Um, so it's kind of like a background in understanding software architecture that helps in this kind of position. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I think that that's one of the things that's a, a challenge. Um, when we move to modern infrastructures and enterprise space is the fact that those two silos have been almost completely disconnected from each other. The network is just a pipe, the application mm -hmm. runs across it. Um, but the reality is the two are, are more tightly uh, tied together than a lot of people like to admit or acknowledge. And uh, you know, at least in your type of networks, but I also found it interesting that like in your type of network, the application is uh, it's not a, a catalog of applications. Like your your application is your product, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm sure there's lots of supporting parts and pieces. I'm not trying to downplay the collection, oh, yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is all going to one particular uh, purpose. Where when you look at an enterprise network, you know, like you have applications for you know a thousand different purposes, mm -hmm. a thousand different implications, and um, it, it's harder to marry the two together. Not to give excuses, but just you know, I think that it is. You know, I look at the web scalers, we'll call out the web scalers in general because, you know, they like to tout how automated and orchestrated everything is. And we look to them, you know, as kind of the the future of networking. But I think they're solving a relatively different problem set than a lot of other people. And so just I, I love this analogy. I use it all the time. The Formula One analogy when it comes to to cars is very similar to networking. Web scalers are Formula One. Probably what you're doing is very similar to Formula One. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uniqueness, a lot of uniqueness in the way that it's built because it needs to be. 
And the reality is that there's a lot of great ideas there that will eventually filter down, but there'll be watered down versions, whatever it yeah. is that needs to happen at that Formula One level. Because while, yeah, sure, we got disc brakes on our car today. They aren't nearly the same thing as what goes on a Formula One car. Yeah. They are they are they are a permutation of that idea that gets applied in a broader sense because hey, this is a good idea. We should use it, but we're gonna remodify it and 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 make it more broadly applicable um, to widespread networks. And so I think it's interesting. That's why I like having these conversations about um, the disparity between the problem sets. Because at the end of the day, we're all using the same tech. Like we're using the same technology. We're using BGP. I mean, we talked about BGP here. We talked about, I'm sure you're in TCP IP all the time, like just trying to figure out like how to optimize the TCP components of what's there. I'm sure you've got people that are working on that. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got, you know, we, we've got, how do we get to the end user and how do we deliver applications? These are terms that it doesn't matter what type of network you work on, but yet there's interesting applications because of just the way that you do business compared to the way that everyone else does. And service providers have that. Web scalers have that. And each and every enterprise is a bit like that. They deliver an interesting product, a unique thing where if they really spent the time building their infrastructure, like if they really saw it as that value, it would be interesting to see what came of that because we see what comes out of it when the web scalers do it. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. That was a little bit of a soapboxy, but um, no, that was great. Um, I think it's probably a good place to wrap up. I think we talked about everything we wanted to talk about. Um, but but before we get too far into wrapping up, uh, Brian, I want people to be able to find you online. So where out on the internet are you doing cool things that people can come find you? Yeah, so I don't have a super strong uh, public presence. Um, you can find me on Twitter, BrianMartin255. Um, I barely ever use that, but please give me a reason to. Um, yeah, everyone go message him right now. Like, yeah. go friend him and send him a message and, yeah, like, make him come back to Twitter and join the community there. Okay, so. That's right. What, what, what else are you doing? Um, yeah, you can also find me uh, Lamley.com. I do some training videos there, and uh, pretty soon I should start posting some blogs about some of the interesting things that can be done with uh, networking programmability. Where was that? Uh, Lamley.com. Landly? Landly, L-A-M-M-L-E. <laughs> okay. Um, so go check that out. You said it's training that's out there. So if you're looking for training around programmability, you're offering some stuff uh, here. Well, yeah, more around service rider engineering. but Service rider engineering. Okay, awesome. The, the programmability pieces as well. Awesome. Good deal. So go check that out as well. Tony, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm at Show IP Interface Brief on Twitter. You can find me in the Network Collective Slack and uh, on your favorite podcast. Uh, show IP Interface Brief. Is it full Show IP Interface Brief or is it just BR? Like, what is it? Uh, it's a, it's a S-H-O-W-I-N-T-B-R-I. BR. Show, show IP interface. Brief. Oh, you got me all screwed up. Yeah. Show IP interface brief. So what? Yeah, whatever. So go find, go, just go search for Tony network. And, and you know, what, every, on Google and you'll find them. Every time uh, someone gets it, my Twitter handle, they'll be like, oh, I get it. Oh, show IP interface brief. And then someone will come by and go, uh, I remember when that command, you had to add the E at the end. Because there was a command for BRI oh, so you, interfaces. Yeah, so you so you have the shortened version. You have it as short as you possibly can. Uh, like no, not completely. Oh, not I completely. I, yeah. I, I have what I type in the command line. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. I have some of those too, where I type extra characters that I don't need to. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just like, like playing a piano. Away. It, just, yeah, it, doing that, it sounds better with a few extra notes. <laughs> is that what it is? They're yeah. inflection notes. Yeah, they're adding color to the commands. Is that what That's we're right. doing? That's right. Wow, I like the way you put it. 
That's very poetic. Anyway, I, I can be found at BC Jordo on Twitter. Um, also, Jordan Martin, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook. You can find me in those places. Uh, if you enjoy this episode, there's quite a catalog of networking goodness that you can find at networkcollective.com. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe and have these episodes pushed to you as soon as they are released, uh, we can be found on all the regular podcast sites like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, all of those. Uh, if you listen to podcasts somewhere, we can find us there. Uh, so we also just love to engage with our audience on social media, just like I said. So go go bother Brian on Twitter, but come talk to us too. So at Net Collective PC on Twitter, you can find us as Network Collective on both Facebook and LinkedIn. So I think that about wraps it up. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>